0: Great to see you all this morning. Good to be here, isn't it? To worship God and to uh, learn from each other and to learn from God's Word together. Now, I've never been very good at maths and I had to get my friend who was head boy and the, the school genius to help me, to give me extra tuition to get my C grade at GCSE. And a number of years ago, I demonstrated my mathematical ineptness with my credit card. Somehow or other, I managed to end up being in credit with a credit card. Rather than owing money, I actually was in credit. They owed me money. I got a statement from Bartley Card, uh, other credit card providers are available, and I realised that somehow or other I had ended up being in credit with Bartley Card, rather than being in debt to them. What what happened was that by mistake I'd made the same payment twice. I owed a few hundred pounds at the end of the month, and every month we pay our credit card off, and at the end of the month I'd, I'd made that payment, I'd paid it back so that my account was back to zero. Then somehow or other, I'd I'd forgotten that I'd done that, and so I paid it again. So that now, not only was my account at zero, but actually it was in credit by a few hundred pounds. And not only did I do this once, but I did it again the following month. So I I just got used to looking at the headline amount. I didn't check whether it was in debit or credit, because obviously it's always in in debit. So uh, I just paid that amount the next month. And then when my statement came the following month, I, I, I saw the headline amount, And realized that actually, something had gone really wrong here. I realized that I was actually in credit by that amount now and not in debt. So that actually Barclay Card owed me money rather than the other way around, which was obviously what what normally happens. And I effectively was ending up treating this uh, credit card account a bit like a savings account without intending to, or without it being designed for that. And finally, I I, I twigged that something was wrong. And I realized how stupid I'd been. So I phoned Barclay Card up and and they repaid the amount to me. And I think I must have been the first person in history to have been loaning money to Barclay Card rather than the other way around. Now you can see why, uh, considering that they owed me £537.92, you can see why I don't run the church finances and why Paul does. You don't want me doing that. Not only was I no longer in debt, I was actually in credit with a credit company. And you know, that is exactly what God does with us when we put our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus to take away our sins and enable us to be acceptable in God's sight. When we trust in Jesus, who was died, who was buried, and and rose again, God not only forgives our sins, that's just like kind of clearing the account and returning our bank balance back to zero. It's as if God then puts some money into our account so that we're actually now in credit. But instead of it being money, he gives us his holiness, he gives us his perfection, he gives us the righteousness, the right standing of Jesus with himself now over the last few weeks we've been studying the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis and a few weeks ago Joel showed us how God did exactly the same thing with Abraham Genesis 15 verse 6 it's the first verse on your outline the outlines are on the back of the um, bulletins if you want to, to use those they're there for you and the verses are up on the screen as well Genesis 15, 6, which Joel read for us and explained for us a few weeks ago, says this, that Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed what God had said to him, trusted in his power to bring new life out of him and give him a son, even though his body was as good as dead, as it says in Romans. And Abraham had placed his faith in God, not only to, to give him a son and many descendants and nations that, that would come from him, but Abraham was trusting God to provide a solution for his sin his descendants Abraham didn't know the full picture as, as, as we do today but he was trusting that God's way of dealing with his sin would come through one of his own descendants the descendant that we know as the Lord Jesus Christ some 1700 years later he was putting his trust in what Jesus would do by dying on the cross by rising from the dead even if he didn't fully grasp everything about that and because he believed God God credited to him as righteousness. God not only forgave his sins and cleared his spiritual debts, but in addition to that, God put righteousness into his account, just like uh, I had credit in my bank account, in my credit card account. God gave Abraham the right standing before him that Jesus had. God gave Abraham the righteousness, the right legal standing with God. Now, Abraham probably didn't understand that as fully as we might today, because we're able to see the big picture of the Bible, we know how it all kind of pans out and how God did that in time. We know that Jesus died and rose again. But nevertheless, Abraham had this right relationship with God, but he not only had that, he was not only forgiven, he was declared as righteous and holy, and as holy and righteous as Jesus in God's sight, through his faith in God. Now that doesn't mean that Abraham then always behaved as if he was righteous and as if he was holy, because he didn't, and that's why God had to remind him to do so. The very first verse of our passage, and it's on your outline, we're going to read the whole passage in a minute, but the very first, passage, the very first verse in our passage today says this, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, or El Shaddai is the Hebrew, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. So we fast-forwarded 13 years from the end of Genesis 16, where we were two weeks ago, where Hagar had given birth to Ishmael. Abraham's now 99 years old, and God appears to him again. Maybe God had been appearing to him throughout those 13 years, we don't know, but, but Moses chooses to highlight this particular appearance. And he says, to walk before me, God says, and be blameless. In other words, as the New Living Translation perhaps more simply puts it, serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. Now, God wasn't saying, if you do this, if you serve me faithfully, if you walk before me and and, and live a, uh, a blameless life, if you do this, you will be credited with a right standing before me. What he was saying was, because you have a right standing with me and before me, I want you to live a life that matches up to the new identity that you have. I've declared you to be holy, I've credited you with righteousness, so now live a life that is holy and righteous. God doesn't make Abraham or us today holy and righteous in his sight because of what we do. He makes us holy and right in his sight when we give up on our efforts to be right with God. When we quit trying to please God or impress God or earn his salvation, earn Him uh, his, his forgiveness and, and God making us right with him. When we stop trying to do that in ourselves and instead trust in Jesus and what Jesus did, God credits us with righteousness. He gives us what we could never earn ourselves. But having declared Abraham to be right in his sight through his faith, he now wants Abraham to live a life that matches up to that new identity, his new standing before God. So with that in mind, let's read the whole of Genesis 17. Genesis chapter 17. I'm reading from the uh, New International Version. Um, I'm going to read the whole chapter. If you haven't got a Bible with you, that's fine. You can just listen, but I'll read it for you. So Genesis 17, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and, will, sorry, and you will greatly increase your numbers. Abraham fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be Abraham, your name will be Abraham. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her that sh- so that she will be the mother of nations Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear a son, bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told them. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that same day, and every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. Now, back in Genesis 15, as Joel looked at uh, a few weeks ago for us, God had entered into this covenant with Abraham. It's what's called the Abrahamic covenant, the technical term for it. And in chapter 17... Many years after receiving the first promises of that covenant, the first detail of it, God appears to Abraham again, and he gives him more information about this covenant. And there are three parts to what God says. Firstly, in verse 4, he says, As for me. So this is God's part of the deal. He says that he would go on to tell Abraham uh, what he would do for Abraham. He would make Abraham the father of many nations. His covenant with Abraham was everlasting. God would give Abraham and his descendants the land of Canaan, where they're living in, which corresponds to the modern sort of land of Israel, more or less. And he would be the God of Abraham's descendants. That was God's part of the deal. That's what God was going to do. That was God's part of the covenant. Then in verse 9, he tells Abraham what he had to do as his part of this covenant. He says, as for you. And then God, God goes on to tell Abraham that he and his descendants were to circumcise every male in their households, whether they descended from Abraham or any male who joined the, 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 the nation or the family or whatever. And that any male who refused to be circumcised or, or wasn't circumcised would be considered to be excluded and outside of that covenant. And in the third part of this covenant relates to I, uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah. In verse 15, God says, ask for your wife, Sarah. And then God states that her name would change to Sarah, which means princess, and that God would give her a son and that Through this son, she would be the mother to many kings and nations. And of course, princesses give birth to kings, don't they? And Sarah would give birth to a son from whom the kings of Israel would uh, would descend and from whom the king of kings would physically descend, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's all fair enough. But why on earth did God tell Abraham to circumcise all the males? What on earth is that all about? I mean, you can imagine, maybe you can't, but... Just imagine Abraham encounters God and God says, this is what you've got to do. You've got to get circumcised and you've got to circumcise all the males and then from then onwards from eight days old. And if I'd been Abraham, I think I would have said, well, really God? Could we not come up with something else? Is there not something else we could do other than circumcision? What about I get a tattoo with El Shaddai on it or or Yahweh on it? Maybe, maybe I get an earring with, with El Shaddai engraved in the earring, or maybe, you know, a ring. maybe from now on all the guys could do that. That would be good. We could all have a tattoo with El Shaddai or a nose ring. Really? It, do we have to do this? I'm, I'm 99. Is that really what you want? And it must have been a very bizarre kind of conversation. In my mind, it would have been anyway. Well, circumcision was known in the Middle East at that time, but this was the first time in history that boys had been circumcised just after birth. So this was new and it was different. So why do it? Well, circumcision is the cutting off of the foreskin. It's something that's done to the human body without actually damaging it or maiming it. And it's done to the most personal and private part of uh, a man's body, signifying in 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 a physical sense that the man has been marked out in the most profound way possible. It went right to the heart of what it means to be a man and it physically altered that part of the body. The man would, would see the fact that he had been circumcised on a very regular basis. This wasn't a kind of public thing for obvious reasons. This was a very private and deeply intimate and personal reminder on a daily basis, on a regular basis, for that man that he had been circumcised and, and to be reminded of what that symbolised every time he saw it. And as the part of the man that was most intimately involved in reproduction, it, it was symbolic of the promise to Abraham that God would multiply his offspring. Every time a circumcised man attempted to procreate, he would be reminded of God's promise to multiply the nation that would descend from Abraham. So that was, I think, why, why circumcision. We're perhaps not going to fully ever understand this was God's choice. It's not something that we would have chosen. I would have gone for a tattoo, I think, over that. But Anyway, so what is circumcision? We know what it is physically, but what does it really mean? What is this really going on? What's what's really going on here? What is God saying? What is God trying to achieve through this? Well, look firstly at Genesis 17, verse 10. God says, This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So it was an outward act and an outward mark although deeply personal, that, that God had made with Abraham, it would be a very real reminder to Abraham and to all his male descendants of the covenant that God had made. But circumcision wasn't just a physical sign of the covenant with Abraham to give him a son through Sarah and from that son many descendants, including his greatest descendant of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't just a physical sign. Romans 4.11 tells us that Abraham received circumcision as a sign a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. So circumcision was also a physical sign, a physical remark and a physical reminder that God gave to Abraham to remind him that he had credited him with righteousness. He'd given him a right standing before God because of his faith. Being circumcised didn't make Abraham or any of his descendants after him right with God. It wouldn't cause God to credit Abraham or his descendants with a right standing before God. God had already done that because of Abraham's faith, as far as Abraham was concerned. It was Abraham's faith in God that made him right with God. Circumcision was, to Abraham and his descendants, a, a physical reminder that they could have a right standing before God by placing their faith in in God to save them. It was a daily reminder to Abraham and his descendants that they needed to follow in Abraham's footsteps, that they needed to, to follow in the footsteps of Abraham who had been a man who had placed his faith in God. And that if they placed their faith in God, they needed also to not only do that, but then live lives that matched up to their new identity and that would be pleasing to God. Abraham did that. That was, by and large, he, he, he went wrong, he messed up, but generally the, the trajectory of Abraham's life was a, a life of obedience and a life of faith and a life where he tried to please God, to, to, to walk before God and be faithful. And, and a small number of Abraham's descendants right the way through, if you follow the, the story through in the Old Testament and into the New Testament, there was a small number of Abraham's descendants in the Jewish nation who did that. But the majority of his descendants didn't. The history of of Israel in the Old Testament, the history of the people into the New Testament, is by and large that the majority turned their back on God over and over and over again. It was just a physical mark for them. And actually it became a source of pride for them. Right throughout the Bible, Abraham's descendants, the Jewish people, thought that they were superior to the Gentiles, the people who are not Jewish. Partly because they had been circumcised and the Gentiles hadn't. But they'd missed the point. Yes, it marked them out as the people that God had chosen to represent him on earth during that period and to be the people from whom the the Messiah would come. The Messiah of course was Jesus. But it was also meant to be a reminder that they needed to have saving faith in God. That they needed to to follow in Abraham's footsteps. Sadly, most of them didn't. Now when Jesus came and died and rose again, taking the punishment for all our sins, he brought to to an end, the need for circumcision. Look at Ephesians 3, verse 6. And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. God, at that moment in history, created a new people for himself. Jew and Gentile brought together, united by their belief in the good news that Jesus had died and that they could have forgiveness and be made right with God. And so here's the good news this morning. If you're a guy, men, we do not have to be circumcised. And I am forever grateful that that has come to an end. Thank goodness that Jesus brought the concept of physical circumcision to an end. And so you can all relax this morning, gents. However, circumcision as a spiritual rather than a physical concept does continue. Look at Colossians 2, verses 11 to 12. Paul, writing to those who've placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to save them, says this. In him, that's Christ. You were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. What is he on about here? Well, Paul borrows this picture of circumcision, physical circumcision, and he says that being part of God's people is no longer about physical circumcision and the removal of physical flesh. It's about spiritual circumcision and the removal of spiritual flesh. If we've received Jesus as Lord, then our spiritual flesh, Paul says, was removed by Jesus when we received him as our Lord. What does this term, the flesh, mean in the Bible? Some translations, typically the NIV puts it sinful nature. It's not a great translation. Some translations put it our old selves. It it, it literally means the flesh, and, and literally it means meat or body, and it can refer to our physical body sometimes, but it's most often used in the Bible in a spiritual sense, to refer to our old natural selves. The term, the flesh, and it says there up on the the screen there, the term the flesh in the Bible represents the ways we used to live independently of God before we accepted Jesus. That's really what the, the flesh is shorthand. So when you read that term, the flesh, or the sinful nature, it's not saying that we have a sinful nature because we no longer have a sinful nature. That's why it's an unhelpful translation. And the new NIV and other translations do put the flesh in but the flesh is is shorthand for the way we used to live as uh, people before we trusted in Jesus and how we used to live independently of God It, it, it refers to how we used to think and live and it was and is opposed to God the flesh is opposed to God and so using this word play on physical circumcision and spiritual circumcision and physical and spiritual flesh Paul says that the flesh our old way of living and thinking has been put off or or, or cut off, literally stripped off. He's borrowing all this language of physical circumcision and he's applying it to our spiritual situation. It was dealt with, it was stripped off, it was removed by Jesus when he died on the cross. So when we accepted Jesus as Lord, our old nature, the flesh, was taken away, it was cut off, it was stripped off and we were given a new nature. Life in, the, in and through the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, continuing in, in those verses in Colossians, that this happened when we were baptised. Look at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul's logic runs like this. You have been spiritually circumcised, if you've trusted in Jesus. And this circumcision took place when you were buried with Christ and raised with him. And this burial and resurrection of Christ happened to you, spiritually and symbolically, when you were baptised. Paul isn't saying that baptism, going down into and under the water and then coming back out of the water, is what actually does this. It's receiving Jesus as Lord that actually causes this to happen. But it's always assumed in the Bible that the person who receives Jesus as Lord will be baptised Almost immediately or very soon after, they have put their trust in in Jesus. And so baptism is always linked hand in hand with receiving Jesus as Lord. The idea in the New Testament when Paul was writing that somebody could receive Jesus as Lord and not be baptised would have been bizarre to the New Testament uh, readers of these words. The two things were and are inseparable. Paul is simply and he's rightly assuming that all the Christians at Colossae that he's writing to had been baptised very soon after they had received Jesus as Lord. And so he could refer to baptism as if it was actually the same thing as receiving Jesus as Lord. It was the symbol of what had happened. Baptism signifies that we've trusted in Jesus, that we've died to our old life as we go under the water, we've buried our old life, it's been stripped away, and we've come back out of the water and we've begun a new life. That's what baptism is partly symbolic of. And, And what Paul is saying is that when we receive Jesus as Lord, symbolized by being baptized, going down into the water and coming back up out of the water, we are considered by God to have been in Christ when he died, was buried and rose again. So what we act out symbolically in baptism is pictured as as linking us to what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. And so we get baptized partly to signify that. So the person who's received Jesus as Lord, symbolized in baptism, has also been spiritually circumcised. They've had their old existence removed, cut off, stripped off. The flesh, the old nature has been dealt with. They've been given a brand new nature, a whole new identity through the Holy Spirit to, come in, uh, to, to, to live within them. But the flesh, the old way of living, that way of living independently of God that we, we existed in before we trusted in Christ, is still alive. And it, we are to consider it dead, but it is still there. It's so deeply ingrained into us that we can still allow ourselves to live by the flesh, by our old nature, by the way we used to live, than by the new nature. And so we have this choice. We can choose to live the way we used to, according to our old nature, according to the flesh, or we can live by our new identity, as people who've been spiritually circumcised, as people who've had the old nature cut off and and removed. We've got that daily choice. I can live by my new identity, or I can live by the way I used to live. And so write this down, we have a daily choice, we need to see ourselves as God sees us. God sees us, if we've trusted in Jesus, he sees you, he sees me as holy, as not only forgiven, but he sees us as being righteous. He's credited our account with righteousness, and that is how God views you. He sees you this morning as holy, as sinless, as spotless. Not just someone who's covered themselves with Jesus' righteousness, but deep down inside is still a a dirty, horrible sinner. That's not how the Bible refers to Christians. You are now if you trusted in Jesus, deeply cleansed, deeply changed right to the very core of your being. That is how God views you. You are no longer a sinner. The Bible refers to God's people as his holy ones, his saints. So God wants us to make that choice every day to see ourselves as God sees us by our new identity and not how we used to see us uh, see ourselves and then correspondingly to live by that new identity. If God sees me as a saint, I'm not going to live or I shouldn't live as a sinner. I'm no longer a sinner. That is not my identity. I am now a saint. So I need to live each day the way that God sees me. If God sees me that way, why would I choose to live a way that is different to the way that God sees me? Abraham's physical descendants were physically circumcised, partly to remind them to follow in the footsteps of Abraham and to put their faith in God. And once they did, circumcision was meant to be that ongoing reminder of the need to live every day by their new identity. They, like Abraham, were meant to serve God faithfully and live a blameless life, not to earn a right relationship with God, but as the outcome of having a right relationship with God by faith. And we, like Abraham, are made right with God by placing our faith in the Lord Jesus and what he did on the cross so that God will forgive us and God will save us. And once we've done that, God wants us to then live lives that match up to that new identity. God wants us to live the way that he actually sees us, to live as holy people with our old life cut off and stripped off. You know, if you've trusted in Jesus today, then he sees you as being holy and right. He's given you the same position before him that Jesus has. So when, you know, in, in, in Hebrews it says that Jesus calls us his his younger brothers and sisters. He's the big brother, and we are the younger brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers. We have exactly the same legal standing before God that Jesus has. That is phenomenal. The trouble is, most of us still think of ourselves as sinners, but just saved by grace, that God's just papered over and made us just about bearable to look at through Jesus, but deep inside we're still rotten, hopeless, worthless sinners. That's not true. That is not biblical. Deep down to the very core of your being, if you've trusted in Jesus, you are a new person. You are utterly transformed and changed. Peter says that we are partakers in the heavenly uh, nature. We are partakers now in God's nature. We are linked forever with God through Jesus. God has totally changed who you are deep down in your inmost being. You're no longer a sinner. That is not how God views you. The New Testament always, except for one exception, and that's a slightly different situation, refers to Christians as saints. It never refers to them as sinners. That is not how God views you. Sinners are people who have yet to trust in Jesus. And when we trust in Jesus, we are transformed and we become holy ones. We're right with God. We are credited into our account with righteousness. And because he's done that, because God has given us this new identity, he wants us to choose now to live by that new identity. So that when we're tempted to lie, we need to remind ourselves that when I'm tempted to lie, I am now a holy one and holy ones don't lie. And when I'm tempted to lust, I need to remind myself that I am now a holy one and holy people don't lust. And when I'm tempted to gossip and slander and and, and talk about people behind their backs or, or, or make fun of people when they're not around, I need to remind myself that I am now a holy one and holy people don't gossip and slander others. Many of us here today have been rightly baptised as a physical sign of our new identity. If you haven't been baptised and you have trusted in Jesus, then can I can I urge you, get baptised. In the Bible, it was just expected that when you trusted in Jesus, you'd get baptised. And if you haven't been, then I really encourage you to do that. Many of us have done that. And it's a sign that we are now holy and right with God. Baptism doesn't make us right with God, but it's a sign of what God has done for us. So the challenge for us is to live according what our baptism signifies, to live as people, as baptised people whose old lives have been cut off and stripped away. In a moment we're going to take communion, another physical sign that God has given us to remind us of what God has done for us and in and through the Lord Jesus. The Bible referring to Jesus as he introduced the concept of taking bread and wine to his disciples says this, In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. The the bread and the wine are a symbol of the new covenant that God has entered into with his people today. Physical circumcision was a part of the Abrahamic covenant. Bread and wine are a symbol of the new covenant that God has entered into with all those who trust in Jesus. And it reminds us that because Jesus died and shed his blood, we are forgiven and we're made right with God, but not just forgiven, not just turning our account back to zero, but God has whacked a whole load of money into our account, as it were. He's put righteousness into our account. We're now holy ones. And as we take bread and wine, it it, it takes us back and we celebrate the wonderful person of Jesus and all that he is and all that he's done for us and that we are now as holy and as righteous as Jesus in God's eyes. Not just in God's eyes, but that is our actual identity. That is who we are. And so, as we take communion together, let's use this moment in a little bit to re-inspire ourselves to live as God's holy people. You know, if I, if, if I think of myself as a sinner, how am I going to live? I'm going to behave like a sinner. If I think of myself as a saint, then I'm going to behave like a saint. That's the challenge in any case. It's all too easy to take communion on a Sunday which partly reminds us of our transformed and new identity but then to live according to our old identity. We can get all very religious about taking communion. Oh, I must go and do communion. It's really important that I take communion. And, And it is. That's why we do it every week in this church. But if it's just a religious thing that we do, we're missing the point massively. One of the challenges of communion is that the rest of the week we then live up to this new identity that this proclaims. Communion doesn't make us right with God. It doesn't make God love us any more than he already does. Communion should be partly about reminding us what God has done for us through the Lord Jesus and who we are now as a result. So as we take communion in a moment, let's make that stand before God to go into this week, to go from this place and to be the people that God has declared we are if we've trusted in Jesus. And if this morning you have yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you have yet to ask him to forgive you, thank him for dying on the cross, and ask him to make you a new person, then why not take that step this morning, perhaps even as the bread and wine comes around, to to step out and, and in faith ask Jesus to forgive you, to make you that new person. But as we take communion together, let's make that stand to be the people that God says we are. And when we truly grasp who we now are through faith in Jesus, it will transform our behaviour so that like Abraham, we will walk before God and be blameless. Let's pray. Father, we're staggered, we're blown away that you would view us this morning if we've trusted in you as being holy, as being as right and as perfect as Jesus. Jesus. It is humbling, it is awesome, it is staggering. And we worship you for it. We thank you that in Christ we have all of these amazing blessings. Not only have you forgiven us, but you've made us holy. You've credited us with a right standing, with righteousness. Father, we worship you. Father, thank you that we don't have to do things like circumcision. We don't, have to, we don't even have to be baptized or to take communion. These things... Don't earn us our salvation. We simply need to put our faith in you. Thank you that it's all about faith and it's all about your grace of giving us what we don't deserve. We worship you this morning. Help us to be people who live by our new identity and not by our old identity, to put off the flesh on that daily basis, to think of ourselves, to consider ourselves, to view ourselves as you view us, as holy people, and help us to be those holy people of God, this day, throughout the week, and make that daily choice. Help us to do this, we pray. We give you all the glory. We praise you. We worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.